Hi everyone, it's me, Ben. Welcome to the first installment of a brand new series we're producing here at Carry the One Radio, the Young Scientist Spotlight series. In each Young Scientist Spotlight, we'll feature a grad student, postdoc, staff researcher, or other early career scientist. We'll chat about their work, of course, but we'll also discuss how they got where they are today and what being a scientist means to them. These fun, candid conversations will showcase the amazing people behind a lot of the science we talk about on Carry the One. Plus, we'll be bringing you even more incredible science, just in a less formal format than our usual episodes. Since this is our first time doing something like this, we'd love to hear what you think. Let us know on Twitter, Instagram, or any of our social media channels, or leave a comment or review on iTunes. Now sit back, relax, and stay curious. This, 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 this is Carry the One. Carry the One Radio, the science podcast. Igniting scientific curiosity. From the University of California, California, San Francisco. For the first installment of the Spotlight, I talked to Whitney Chen, a graduate student here at the University of California, San Francisco, studying Parkinson's disease. We talked about working with patients, the hottest topics in clinical neuroscience today, how Whitney became a scientist, and the tribulations of life in grad school. Plus, stick around after the credits for a little discussion about dog poop. So why don't we just start off with your name and where we are? what your position is. Yeah, uh, my name is Whitney Chen. I'm a fifth year graduate student in the neuroscience program at UCSF. Um, and where I am today, I'm doing an interview. With you. Yes, that, <laughs> that is where you are. Um, what do you research? Yeah, so I study brain circuits and Parkinson's disease. I try to understand how the brain controls movements and how that might be wrong in Parkinson's patients. Could you give a very basic summary of sort of what Parkinson's disease is? Yeah, Parkinson's disease is a movement disorder, so patients often have trouble um, initiating and going through with their movements, so they tend to be a bit slower, um, and they have some muscle rigidity. So it's um, mostly, it's actually entirely categorized by the motor symptoms, but it's actually, it actually consists of some non-motor symptoms too. So there's like depression and anxiety and this, mm. it's this very complicated disorder for my project. I focus on the motor component of it. And there are also a lot of different ways of looking at Parkinson's disease. So one is on kind of the cellular molecular level and another is kind of on the circuit level, which is what I'm interested in. That's kind of seeing like how different parts of the brain talk to each other and how they might be weird in Parkinson's How do you eavesdrop on those conversations? Yeah, so um, one of the treatments for Parkinson's disease is this um, brain surgery called deep brain stimulation. Um, That's when these electrodes get implanted into particular parts of their brains, and for whatever reason, once you zap these parts of the brain, the patients get better motorically. Um, So we have these patients coming in for the surgery, and we can record from their brains. And so we record electrical activity from parts of the brain that we think are involved in either the motor symptoms or the non-motor symptoms, and we try to understand those signals. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I feel like DBS has sort of been having a moment lately. I don't know if it's just me or... It is. It's really taken off in the last few years. I mean, neurostimulation is super hot right now. Um, DBS is quite invasive because you have to poke into patients' brains, but um, people are also looking into ways to stimulate brains that are non-invasive. So yeah, it's a super hot field. It's really cool. (laughs) Uh, Does that affect, like 
I guess on the day-to-day, your research feels the same, regardless of whether it's yeah. buzzed about or not. Yeah. But it is cool to, like, go to conferences or go to these talks where people are trying to apply DDS in totally different things that I never think about on a day-to-day basis. So we have um, a team just down the hall using DDS for chronic pain, and that's mm. something that I don't really think about at all. But, you know, it's perturbing circuits make sense as a way to try to fix things. The nice thing about working with humans here is that we just have such a high volume clinic. We have patients coming in all the time and more often than not, they're just great people. Um, Because I think if I put myself in their shoes and somebody asked me to do research where they're recording from my brain, I'd be like, I'd be very, very skeptical. Usually when I approach these patients, I'm like, hey, can we record from your brain and also put in this extra electrode that's only for research? And they're like, yeah, do it. Anything for science. <laughs> That's awesome. They're very altruistic and yeah. it's very, very inspiring and they're tough cookies. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes I I mean I see them in surgery and sometimes they're cracking jokes and they're or they're like really, really tired and they still go through and they do the research portion for you and wow. and I just love that about them. These are awake surgeries that they're yeah. These are completely awake and we ask them to do like these tasks for us while we record their brain activity. So, um, they're very good about it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's That's awesome. awesome. I love working with the people. What, like, kind of applications do you see for the work you're doing? I guess there's some clear clinical directions. Yeah. So, I'd say, like, the hot topic right now in the field of Parkinson's disease is adaptive DBS. So, right now, deep brain stimulation is kind of in this closed-loop mode, meaning that there's a lot of... um, Meaning neurologists often have to tinker with the settings that they put patients on, and it's a lot of just trial and error. Um, and with adaptive DDS, hopefully we're going to first understand like what kinds of signals correspond to what symptoms, and then have the stimulation adapt according to the, the, the signals that they pick up. Mm-hmm. Um, so less kind of human tinkering, more kind of um, the algorithm kind of adapting itself. Yeah, that sounds like a like a coding question. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's the nice thing about where I'm working now is that there's a huge like basic science component. There's a nice clinical science component. There's a lot of engineering that goes into it. And so we work with a lot of different people in these different fields. Did you always want to be a scientist? Um, no, I had a lot of trouble figuring out what I wanted to be and even now I'm still trying to figure that out as I'm exiting grad school soon hopefully um, but both my parents grew up in rural China as farmers and so I never had any kind of like familial influence on what I should do so and we're also my brother and I were also first generation students and so we went to school as kind of blank slates and we just picked up whatever we were good at or you know, whatever kept us interested. And so I went to college and I enjoyed neuroscience. And then I just continued to do that straight after college. And now that I'm kind of transitioning out of grad school, I'm back at the same question of trying to figure out what it is that I want to do. Or even conveying the idea of doing a PhD was very difficult. I don't think my parents knew what a PhD was. And for them, like education kind of ended at college. So conveying that I was going to be doing more school and it wasn't something like like med school or law school, but a PhD that was very abstract. 
Yeah. I think it is an abstract concept to a lot of people. Yeah. Though. yeah it just... What does it mean when you say you're going to do five to six years of research? Or even just explaining what research is is kind of difficult. Um, like the research behind making drugs is very straightforward. Like we're trying to find new drugs to give patients. But when sure. you're doing some, something so basic science, it's really hard to convey. So I don't really talk to my family much about science. And if I do, it's a very, very watered down version of it. Like I'm trying to understand Parkinson's disease. Um, with friends outside, I don't know. There's, there are varying levels of interest. Sometimes you tell people, you gather data in the operating room and you stick probes in people's heads and they're like, whoa, I want to learn more. But other times you say, hey, I'm doing neuroscience and it's, whoosh, it's gone. <laughs> We've talked about some of the challenges associated with communicating your science to people. What about like being in grad school in general? I guess another thing that I didn't like about grad school was the lack of diversity, I guess. That's re or, very reasonable. It's just where I went to high school and where I went to college was very, very diverse, and coming here afterwards was such a culture shock. Um, mm -hmm. Everybody's white, and people are mostly men. Not yeah. to make it uncomfortable. Oh, no, no, absolutely. That's, that's, it's just true. It's, yeah. it's just a fact. I felt like I had much fewer peers who I could kind of commiserate with and especially being a first gen it's really really hard to navigate grad school because it's so the process is so opaque yeah um, yeah at least in college you know people tell you to take these courses and to do whatever and then graduate but in grad school it, it was very very tough yeah yeah I feel like there's a lot of like unspoken politics of like yeah who you can and can't go to for advice and like how to, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, or like, and, and like how yeah. you're supposed to talk to people. Um, it was a huge paradigm shift, and it just, it's a very steep learning curve. What does your day-to-day -day work look like? So it's kind of changed. Um, earlier on in my PhD, I focused more on data collection. So it was a lot, I spent a lot more time in the operating room with patients, um, trying to consent patients for these studies, um, programming tasks that they end up doing in the operating room and troubleshooting recording devices that we have. Um, and now, since I'm kind of wrapping up my PhD, I'm more doing analysis stuff and writing. Um, so my day-to-day -day now is more in front of a computer. Is it a dissertation writing or uh, paper writing? Manuscript writing, which hopefully will contribute to this dissertation. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. That's actually something that I don't think we talk about in too many of our interviews is the process of manuscript preparation. Uh -huh. um, could you describe a little bit about what that's like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's... It's fun, but it's also quite painful. Um, I think putting the numbers together and coming up with the story is the fun part, but having to flush it out and having to revise things as reviewers want them to be done, that's challenging because there is a lot of compromise that needs to be made sometimes. Um, and people have different opinions. And so you might think you're doing the right thing, but a reviewer somewhere far away in this world thinks that something else is better and so 
it's it can be painful chopping things out. I think the first manuscript that I submitted, I ended up having to get rid of two figures. But I mean, yeah. two figures—that's like two years of work right there. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. Mixed feelings about it. It's fun and it's rewarding once it finally gets to where you want it to go. But the process is a lot of work. I think in grad school in general, you have to learn to deal with failure, and you have to learn to accept that gratification is often delayed. So it might be like two rounds of a grant submission before you get accepted, or four rounds of a paper submission before you get it accepted. And oftentimes you just get let down so much that you forget that maybe I will get some gratification in the end. Yeah. Um, so in the very beginning, I hated being let down so much. Um, but that's something that I kind of learned to cope with. But yeah, lots of failure in grad school that you have to learn to deal with. Lots of uncertainty um, regarding when you'll finish or if what you're doing is even the right thing. And there are many ways to interpret numbers. So we might not ever know if what we're publishing is the ground truth, but we try our best to convey what we think it's, the, the story is. Yeah, and I guess all we can do is gather evidence and yeah. see how it lines up. Yep. But you just kind of learn to live with it because that's just what science is, it's uncertainty. This episode was produced by me, Ben Mansky, with help from the team at Carry the One Radio. A huge shout out to Sama Ahmed, Carly Van Orsdal, David Cabral, Judith Horn, and Janine Cuevas, as well as all the rest of our amazing, fantastic, incredible, unbelievably cool Patreon supporters. You too can join this honestly not very exclusive club by heading to patreon.com slash carry the one. If you give $3 or more, we'll send you some great thank you gifts, like our special 10th anniversary stickers. If $3 sounds a little steep, but you still want to support what we do, we appreciate any contribution. Or let us know what you think by leaving a comment or review. You can find more episodes on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more episodes, check out our website, carrytheoneradio.com. Tune in next week when we re-premiere our Life Science miniseries, produced in collaboration with the Quantitative Biosciences Institute at UCSF. In the meantime, thanks for listening and stay curious. Is what um, things in science do you think are cool that aren't necessarily your research? It's like, what's interesting? Um, I would say in the past year, animal behavior. Yeah. <laughs> I got a dog in the last year, so <laughs> just observing what he does on a day-to-day basis makes me wonder, like, why is that evolutionarily the thing that dogs do? And yeah. so I just find myself Googling a lot of things. <laughs> that's really interesting. Yeah, it's, I mean, a bit off topic, but like one thing that my dog does is when he poops, he stares right into my eye. And so <laughs> I always wonder why he does that. And there are a number of theories out there, and there's probably like no scientific backing. But at like all. dogs do this, like it's yeah, a documented it's a thing. thing. And when you Google it, like people will talk about it. So it's not just me. Yeah. Um, but people think that like when dogs look at you when they're pooping, they're looking for some sense of security because when they're pooping, they're vulnerable. So they want to make sure that somebody's got their back and that they're not going to be eaten by like a bear or something. That's 
kind of sweet. Yeah. <laughs> if that's the case, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, just I guess I guess that's science, right? Yeah, I know for sure. <laughs> I don't know. It's a kind of science. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's definitely a lot of people working on like animal, like evolutionary behaviors, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that seems hard to research though. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> Which is also why I like doing a science in human subjects. Um, because with my patients, at least I can just ask them, how are you feeling? Or if they do a task and some of their behavioral metrics look a little weird, I can ask them like, Hey, did you do something weird? Or what was going on in your mind when you were doing that, that test? Were you paying attention? Yeah. And so it's really nice to get that feedback from humans. Yeah. If I could ask my cells or mice. Yeah. Like, like why yeah. did you go here? Right. That'd be really awesome.